Well, mankind, in his rebellion against God, has always been trying to justify his unbelief. And many fall back on human reasoning by which they believe they can outright disprove even the existence of God. And so one argument goes like this. Maybe you've heard it before. Can God create a stone so large that he cannot lift it? Atheists love this riddle, which seemingly disproves the omnipotence of God. If he can create a stone that he can't lift, well, then he's not omnipotent. And if he can't create such a stone, he's also not omnipotent. So either way, God must not be omnipotent. And since omnipotence is one of the chief attributes of God's nature, there, there must be no God. So I guess that's it. Case closed. We can all go home now. <laughs> but what is the problem with this? The problem is that atheists are merely refuting a God of their own making, not the God of the Bible. We have to define the attributes of God according to his revealed word, not man's philosophy. In this case, atheists start with the wrong definition of omnipotence, namely that God can do all things. But did you know the Bible teaches there are several things God cannot do? He cannot lie, cannot fail to keep his promises, he cannot be tempted by evil, and so on. Biblically, omnipotence means God can do all things that are in accordance with his own nature. He can't contradict his own nature. These limitations are not a weakness to God. They're part of his true strength and perfection. I bring this up because this classic example reminds us of the need to define God and think of God biblically, not through the lens of man's reason and philosophy, but through his own revealed word. And forget Greek philosophy, how they think of the divine. We have to seek to understand God according to his own self-revelation, which is found in the scriptures. This is true when it comes to understanding something like God's omnipotence. This is also true when it comes to understanding God's sovereignty in salvation. And that is our subject this morning. What is the role of God's will in salvation? And then by the same token, what is the role of man's will in salvation? Man has been attempting to settle the, the free will versus predestination debate forever. And which is it? And we want answers not based on human reasoning, but based on what God has said, his word. What is his role in salvation? What is our role what does his word have to say? Let's just stick with that. That is our aim this morning. And where is this coming from? Why are we doing this? Well, if you want a little context, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, just as we get started, Matthew 11. We've been in Matthew for a while going through this gospel, and a few weeks ago, we, we came across this well-known passage, famous for showcasing in this perfect tension God's sovereignty in salvation and man's responsibility in salvation. Jesus shows God's will being the cause of our salvation. At the same time, he appeals to our will to come to him. So we can read again Matthew 11, starting at verse 25, where Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Some pretty strong statements where Jesus praises God for revealing the way of salvation that some may find it, and concealing the way that others may not. In addition, Jesus attests that it's up to him as the Son to reveal the Father. It appears salvation hinges on the will of Father and Son. 
But in the very next breath, Jesus appeals to our will. Verse 28, he then says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus invites all who are burdened by sin to come to him, and that call should go out to all. All must repent and believe to be saved. And passages like this put together seem to indicate that when it comes to God's will and man's will and salvation, it's less of an either or, more of a both and. But it's still not that simple. We want to know whose will is the deciding factor. Who acts first? Do we have free will? And if not, how can God blame us for our choices? And does God really choose people? If so, how can he condemn those whom he doesn't choose? Like a million questions arise. I said a couple weeks ago, this passage in Matthew 11, it, it's like an iceberg. You just you see the tip of all these big issues as you sail by. And if you dare look under the surface, you see a mountain. These are big issues. And most often here, we, we can't help but look under the surface a little bit. And that this text exposes us to this huge fundamental issue of God's role and man's role in salvation. Something we want to know, we, we should know, we need to know, God has revealed what we need to know in his word. So this morning, we want to explore this issue a little bit further. Not exhaustively, we're not going to go look at this exhaustively, but I felt compelled to do just a single sermon detour, searching not not man's reasoning, but God's word on God and man in salvation. And this is not just a quest for head knowledge. The scripture presents the pursuit of the knowledge of God, trying to arrive at all spiritual wisdom and understanding and salvation as being immensely practical, that should impact even our daily living, something we want to find out as well. So this can be a one-off sermon, but I want to present this morning six biblical truths to help you understand the role of God's will and man's will in salvation. Let's just go ahead, let's solve free will versus predestination in one sermon, right? Let's just, no big deal. Now, it will be a tall order, but six biblical truths to help you appreciate the role of God's will and man's will in salvation. It is going to be a whirlwind study. We're going to go through a lot, but I guess I'll say we're going to speed through the first three of these, save some time for the last three, and see if we can be edified by searching the scriptures for what God has said about our salvation. The more we can understand our salvation, the better. Let's see if we can do this. Starting with one, lay some, some groundwork. First, man is a morally responsible, willing agent. Yeah, it's a mouthful, but man is a morally responsible, willing agent. Then I will explain that. We're just laying the, the groundwork. God made us humans in his image to be persons, and by personhood, we have intellect, emotion, and will. Regarding the latter, human will just refers to the ability to think, to choose, to make decisions, to act voluntarily, and that's simple enough. But the related question that's been asked all history is, do we have a free will? Is our will free? Most people would automatically say yes. Certainly Americans, we cherish our freedom and liberty. It might surprise you, at the very least, to know the Bible never mentions free will, never speaks of free will. We certainly have a will. We have the ability to make choices. But is that will free? It all depends on how you define it. So here's one definition. Our will is free in that we make choices that are our own, and we will be held morally responsible for 
such choices. We're not robots or puppets. We are willing agents. Is that definition biblical? Yes, it is. Let's say you have a pair of expensive shoes. You can't afford to buy them, but you really want them. You have a choice. You now can steal them. That choice can be influenced by many factors, but if you still do the deed, you steal the shoes, that's it's your choice. You've made a choice, and as such, you will be held morally responsible for that choice. And that's just our first point. Biblically, man is a morally responsible, willing agent. You have a real will, you make real choices in Scripture. The Bible does not present us like Pinocchio on a set of strings and God just dances us around to make us do all these things. No, we make real, willing choices, and that's why we are held morally responsible for them. And so if this is how you define free will, then yes, we have free will. But there's a second definition of free will that is not biblical. This is the the libertarian notion of free will, which states that our will is free only if we are ultimately self-determining. What that means is that our will must be the ultimate determining factor if any choice is to be a real choice, if we're going to be held responsible for any choice. It has to come down to our will alone, not God, not fate. It has to be us. And I get that philosophically. It's just the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches God's will is supreme and sovereign. Our will is not. Only God's will is self-determined. We are all subordinate, dependent creatures. He's the creator. All of our choices have been determined, not in the sense that God makes us do them, but in the sense that they have been foreknown and ordained by God. And those in the world might object, like, hey, if God ordained that I would steal those shoes, how can he hold me responsible for my choice? It wasn't a real choice. But the Bible would say, yes, it was. The fact is, God is not making the choice for us. He's not coercing us. We're making the choices, and when we do, We have zero knowledge of God's hidden, ordained will anyway. And bottom line, it boils down to this. We are doing what we want to do every time. Every decision you make, if you really boil it down, you're doing what you most wanted to do. We always act according to our desires, and we're held responsible. Now, there's a ton more we could say about how God brings about his sovereign will through the the acts of willing creatures. Some mystery to it. But as part of his comprehensive sovereignty, we'll have to save that topic for another time. But to start this basic biblical truth that man is a morally responsible, willing agent. Let's move on. Secondly, man is under God's wrath because he has freely chosen sin. Man is under God's wrath because he has freely chosen sin. What has man done with his will? He has freely chosen sin and rebellion against God. So let's just introduce here the sin problem, which is why we need salvation. God has sovereignly allowed for sin in his plan for this world, but in the Bible, sin and evil are never attributed to God. Rather, the blame always falls on willing agents. That could be Satan and demons. It could be us humans. We are the ones choosing to violate God's revealed will. That's the very definition of sin. God doesn't make anyone sin. God doesn't even tempt anyone to sin. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So where does sin come from? It comes from, from us, from our own lusts fed by our fallen nature. 
Adam and Eve had uncorrupted natures. They had the capacity to choose good or evil. After the fall, though, man's nature is now inclined to sin and self, not God. And so as a result, we freely and happily make self-willed choices that are against God's will. And these sinful choices invite God's wrath, which is his righteous indignation toward evil, toward sin and evil. Nowhere is this clearer than in Romans 1 through 3. You can flip there. We're going to look at probably like 40 passages. So you're going to have to be fast. But Romans 1 shows how all humanity is under God's wrath. And to blame, is, it's not God's choosing. It's our choosing. We are to blame. We're accountable for our sins. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What are we doing? We have suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness. We have denied the God who made us. Verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Why are we under wrath? Because we did not honor God as God. We honor ourselves as God. Worship ourselves. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Later in Romans 2, we learn more about God's wrath. You need to know, judgment in Scripture is always presented as being according to deeds, works. Everyone who is judged, they will be judged by their deeds for what they have done, which stem from their choices. Romans 2, 5 says, the unrepentant are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. You know what that means? It means, verse 8, that to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, uh, wrath, and indignation. It says, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. The condemnation of all humanity continues in chapter 3, more familiar. Verse 9, all are under sin. Verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. Verse 11, there's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. Verse 12, there is none good, not even one. So you put it all together, you get Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the problem is Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. By that meaning, eternal separation from the glory of God, suffering his just wrath in hell. So you can see we've, we've quite a problem here. We've dug humanity, quite a hole for ourselves. From Adam, our head, down to each individual, we're thoroughly in sin. And the blame always lands on us and our choices that we have made and the deeds we have done. That's just what the Bible says. It's how we will be judged. God's judgment is just, and it will be rendered according to our deeds. And so we say, number two, man is under God's wrath because he has freely chosen sin. Number three, third kind of foundational point, man is made responsible to repent and believe in Jesus as his only hope for salvation. These aren't three tiny alliterated points this morning. 
Man is made responsible to repent and believe in Jesus as his only hope for salvation. This is still foundational, but we would be remiss if we didn't include the gospel. That The bad news is that as sinners, we have chosen rebellion. And as such, we were separated from God and are under his wrath. But the good news is salvation can be found. That God made a means of salvation. We should add that such salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his gift. In response to man's fallen condition, God didn't have to do anything. He could have just left us in our sinful state with no hope of redemption, only awaiting his perfectly just judgment. You realize that's the plan for fallen angels. There is no plan of redemption for the fallen angels. They're merely awaiting wrath. And God could have done that with humans. Just, all right, well, so be it. They'll eventually all be judged. But in the mystery of his mercy, he made a plan of redemption for mankind. This plan centers on the atoning work of his son, Christ, whereby God sent his son, Jesus, to save us by living a sinless life, but still dying on the cross as a substitute sacrifice. He's making atonement for all of our sinful deeds and choices, and he was bearing God's wrath in our place as if he had made all those sinful choices. He paid the full penalty, yet rose from the third, or on the third day in victory. And so we have to finish Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So look, already you, you had better appreciate to some degree God's sovereignty and salvation, because if he didn't take action, all humanity would be lost There'd be zero chance of salvation. Salvation is his grace gift. That being said, Scripture does use the language that this gift must be received. You must receive it to be saved. There's something you have to do, not by works, but by faith. You have to make a decision of your will to repent and believe in Jesus to be saved. You must believe in him as Lord and Savior, trusting in him to save you. Jesus is presented as inviting all to him to find his forgiveness, his righteousness, reconciliation with God. That in Christ, the door to salvation is open and all are invited in. You had better walk through the door. It's John in his gospel. He, he makes sure we know this. Like John 1.12. It says, as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Of course, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And you add to that John 3.36, he who believes in the son has eternal life. He who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You can see we're made responsible to repent and believe in Jesus as our only hope for salvation. This is, this is our responsibility. We're just going to say what Scripture says. We will believe what Scripture teaches. And if you repent and believe, you will be saved. If you don't, you will have no Savior, and you will be judged by your works. And on that day of judgment, all blame squarely falls on the lost. Not God's sovereignty, not his choice, but our choice. The lost, their unwillingness to repent and believe, their willingness to to sin. They'll be held accountable. This is man's responsibility 
in salvation. And we fully uphold it. All right, so what have we established so far? We're laying that the biblical groundwork for man's responsibility in salvation. Man was made a morally responsible, willing agent. But man is under God's wrath because he has freely chosen sin. Man is then made responsible to repent and believe in Jesus as his only hope for salvation. So when we read Jesus saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He means it. And if if you don't come, you won't find rest. You will be judged. Now that's not the end of the story here because on our own, no one is able to come to Jesus. Number four, man is unable to believe in Jesus by his own will. Man is unable to believe in Jesus by his own will. You know, we talked about our sin problem, but we didn't go far enough. That our problem runs deeper. It's more than just the guilt of sinful deeds. But we have to account for our nature or our condition after the fall. Something happened to us that has greatly affected our ability to choose God. So let's talk about our sin condition. Like, How bad is it? Well, we exist in a state of spiritual death. That bad. Ephesians 2.1, we're, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 3 adds that we were by nature children of wrath. By nature. The condition of all mankind after the fall is one of total depravity. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but all are corrupt or defiled such that before God, nothing they do would honor him or merit his favor. What else does scripture teach about our sinful condition? Well, we have like Genesis 8.21, that the intent of man's heart is only evil from his youth. Or Isaiah 64.6, all of us have become unclean. Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. Jeremiah 17.9, that man's heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. It's just a small sampling, but what a testimony of our lost condition. We're depraved, meaning wicked, corrupt in nature, and it's total, meaning it extends to every part of our being, intellect, emotion, will. Now, speaking of our will, what has our depraved condition done to our will? Our will is not lost. We already established we're still morally responsible, willing agents, and when we sin, we're doing what we want to do, and we're held responsible for those choices. But here's the thing. Our will is diminished. Our freedom of choice is limited by our depravity. Man is still free in the sense that he's not being controlled by an outside agent. He's free to do whatever he's able to do, but his ability has been severely limited by the curse, by the fall. You may say like a man has freedom to go into a market and buy whatever food his heart desires, but that freedom is limited by his wallet. He doesn't have any money. He's actually not free to buy anything. All of his choices now are limited. It's not, he's not really that free after all. Free will is limited by ability. And this is what has happened to man's will after the fall. Specifically, our ability to know God, to, to find God, to reach God has been lost. This is why Martin Luther said that a lost liberty is really no liberty at all. And that's why it becomes functionally meaningless to speak of a free will. Biblically, after the fall, it's better to speak of a bound will. 
That fallen man's will has become bound and restrained by sin and Satan. No longer able to please God or choose God. And let me now show this to you biblically. I'll give you another sampling of verses here on man's limited ability to know God, to believe in God. You see them paired with verses that speak of us as not being free, but bound to sin and Satan. How about the classic 1 Corinthians 2.14? It says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. It's a direct verse on our ability, our limited ability. A fallen man, he, he can't even, he can hear the gospel, but he can't hear the gospel. It's as if it's in another language. How can he accept it? He's like a blind man in a, an art gallery or a deaf man at a symphony. He just can't understand spiritually that the gospel is spiritual. And he's spiritually dead, he's senseless. We have Romans 6. We summarized that last week. You know, what, is, what is the present state of the unbeliever? Romans 6, 16, enslaved to sin. Verse 19, slaves to impurity and lawlessness. That's some powerful language, but it's showing we're, we're not really free. We're bound by sin. Sin reigns in the fallen man, not God, but self is master. Then you have Romans 8, 7 and 8. It says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And another direct statement on our ability and that the unbelieving mind is not even able to heed the law of God or please God. We're hostile to God in nature. We're pictured as enemy combatants. We're at war. Nothing we do, we're your enemy, is pleasing to you. You're, you're the enemy. Over in John chapter 8, where Jesus, he's involved in a debate with the Jews directly on the subject of freedom. He says in verse 33 to them that only in him will you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. To this they object, and they say, hey, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. And you expect Jesus to say back, like, have you forgotten the Exodus? Like, you were slaves for 400 years. That's not what he says. He says back to them, verse 34, he says, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. He's telling them, you don't even realize that your greater master is sin. But no matter what Jesus says, they don't believe him. And he goes on to teach why they don't believe him. It's because they can't believe him. They're not free. They're bound to sin. And he adds to their father, the devil. This is John eight forty three. He says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. The people could not understand the truth or receive Jesus. Why not? Because they're of their father, the devil. They share his nature, which is not one of truth, but lies. And as his children, they, they naturally want to do the desires of the devil. And so far from being described as free, Scripture describes all people as being enslaved to sin and Satan. This explains 2 Corinthians 4, 4 which says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the gospel. They can't see the light of Christ because they're blindfolded. Also, 2 Timothy 2.26 says of the lost, 
that they have been ensnared by the devil and they're being held captive by him to do his will. So much for free will. That sounds like a captive will. And this describes all the lost. Look, we could keep going. But you can see the testimony of Scripture on man's total depravity and inability to choose God. It's comprehensive. It's clear that man is in a sorry state. He's like Lazarus in the tomb. He's spiritually dead. He's unable to respond to the Savior's call on his own. Unredeemed man is like a spiritual corpse, all made worse by his enslavement to Satan. His will may be free to fulfill his evil desires, but his will is nowhere described as free to choose God, to do good, to merit favor, to answer Christ's call, just the opposite. Our sins have opened this vast chasm between us and God. And we need to get across so that we're not judged. There's only judgment on this side of the chasm. We, we desperately desire to be reconciled to God, or need to be, rather. And God invites us to cross, but we are not free to cross because we don't have the ability. And furthermore, we don't want to cross. We have no desire for God. How can man repent of sin when he loves it and serves it? How can he believe in Jesus when he's ensnared by the devil and happily does his will? Fallen man is both unable and unwilling to make such a choice. To heed the call, come to me, he doesn't want to. He won't, and he doesn't want to. This is why we say, as Scripture teaches, number four, man is unable to believe in Jesus by his own will. It's still not the end, thankfully, that not all hope is lost. Whereas God first made a provision for this chasm to be crossed, He made a bridge by the cross of Jesus, so it can be crossed. And God also has the power to draw us across. God does not force us across. He does not drag us kicking and screaming against our wills into his kingdom. He doesn't. But he does work sovereignly to open blind eyes that we might behold his glory and freely go to him. This leads us to number five. That God must sovereignly call man to salvation. That God must sovereignly call man to salvation. In sin, man is spiritually dead, blind, enslaved. He's lost the ability to do good, to please God, or to come to Jesus. His only hope is for God to intervene and do something for him, to change him. Thankfully, Scripture teaches that is precisely what God does. In an act of special sovereign grace, God changes us. He brings the spiritual dead to life. He gives sight to the blind. He opens the ears of the deaf. He he takes man's corrupt, bound will, and he frees it and renews it. In all, this is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ... It's a new creature. And this is what enables us to see God and then repent and believe. As the sinner's ears are open to the truth, as his eyes are open to the the beauty of Christ, his heart is remade to receive him, then they find Christ irresistible. They will happily run to him of their own restored will. 
You just need to remember this basic principle across the board. People always act according to their strongest desire. It's always true. People always act according to their strongest desire. Sinners don't choose God because they don't want to. At the end of the day, they don't want to. And they never will want to because they're spiritually dead. But through this special grace, God changes a sinner's heart, which gives them new desires for God, by which they freely choose to believe. An example of this, we all know pigs love to wallow in the mud. The mud can be mixed with waste and refuse, but they don't care. It's in their nature. They love the mud. They would happily spend all day just rolling around in it. Sheep do not love the mud. They're repulsed by the mud. They don't want to go to it. It goes against their nature. Now, when it comes to this work of God's transforming grace, he's not taking a bunch of pigs out of the mud and making them follow a shepherd. Instead, his sovereign work is to transform pigs into sheep. These new creatures then immediately start to act according to their new nature. They get out of the mud because now it's, it's repulsive. And they search for green pastures because that's not what they want. Which is to say they repent of their sins. They respond in faith to the voice of the good shepherd. who has been calling the whole time. Only now they can hear the voice of the good shepherd. It makes sense to them. They want to follow the voice of the good shepherd because now they're sheep. Didn't Jesus say in John 10, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Not you're not my sheep because you don't believe. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. He's got to make you a sheep first. In case you're wondering, yes, this effectual calling is akin to regeneration or the new birth, which is also a sovereign work of God. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us to bless God, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. You don't make yourself born again. It's, we're just passive. He makes us alive, born again. How much was your will involved in your first birth? Not at all. The same goes for your second birth. And such new birth has always been man's only hope. Way back in the Old Testament, God told the people he knew what he would have to do for them if they would ever actually follow him and love him and obey him, which the Jews never did until he does this. Deuteronomy 36, he has to circumcise their hearts, which is this metaphor for for giving them new hearts. That's Ezekiel 36, 26. New covenant promise, he, he will have to take out their heart of stone, give them a beating heart of flesh, He'll have to put his Holy Spirit within them and cause them to walk in his statutes. So he has to make them new. This is why when Jesus comes on the scene, he says to the people, John 3, 3, hey, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. The term actually literally is born from above. It's a sovereign birth. This new birth is God's work. It's the only way to see God and to find him. You must be born again. You recall back to Ephesians 2, we're spiritually dead, we're enslaved to Satan, we're by nature children of wrath. What can we do? But hope is found in God alone. It says, who being rich in mercy, what did he do? Ephesians 2, 5 says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You all know we must be saved through faith, but we say by grace through faith. Because you will never come to faith 
unless you receive grace. God must also set us free. You recall 2 Timothy 2.26, Satan holds captive the lost to do his will. But the verse before that, verse 25, says God, thankfully, is the one who can grant repentance. It's a gift. He must grant repentance that you might come to your senses, leading to the knowledge of the truth, it says. The only way anyone is going to come to the senses, like the prodigal, and run back to the Father, is if God sets them free, heart, mind, soul. Also, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Remember, Satan is blinding the minds of the unbelieving. But the good news is that it says, God says, let there be light. He's the one who shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Which basically means, look, the same power God used to speak the world into existence, he uses to speak a new heart into you that you may now behold the beauty of Christ and run to him. Now I'll say again, God does not coerce us against our wills to believe in Jesus. Rather, he lifts the blindfold that we might see his beauty. At that point, we instantly realize, like the prodigal, we've been living in filth. And this now is repulsive to me. I don't want this anymore. And then beholding his glory and his offer, the doors open, come to me. Well, we then, the choice is irresistible at that point. With renewed wills, we run from sin and we run to the Savior. And this is our hope, that God must sovereignly call man to salvation. And thankfully, he does. As the general call goes out, that's the preaching of the gospel. As God wills, the effectual call goes out, bringing some to life, enabling them to believe. Is this not exactly what happened to Lydia? Classic verse, Acts 16, 14. Paul preaches the gospel to a lot of people, but Lydia believes. Why does Lydia believe? It says, because the Lord opened her heart to understand the things spoken by Paul. Does it get much clearer than that? But there's one more big truth we have to add to finish this survey of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation. We've learned that God, because of our sin problem, God must sovereignly call man to salvation. Let's add this, number six. God sovereignly calls man to salvation according to his will alone. God sovereignly calls man to salvation according to his will alone. And we'll explain that. Salvation is God's grace gift. It's his to give, and he gives it to whom he wills, by his calling, by his choosing, by his will. This is the fact of election. That God sovereignly calls and chooses some. It's really uncontested. It's everywhere in Scripture. Ephesians 1.4, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Again, how clear is that? Verse 5, that he predestined us to adoption as sons. That's not talking about everybody. Another famous verse, Acts 13.48. Again, Paul preaches, some people believe, some don't. Why do these people believe? Under the hood, like, why are they choosing to believe? It says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's who believed, those who were appointed to eternal life. Again, pretty clear. All throughout the Bible, how are believers identified? We are not the calling, but the called. We're not the choosers, but the chosen. 
And look, we've learned we, we must make a real choice to follow the Lord. Yes, we do. But we don't take credit or boast in that choice because we know it's, it's only made possible by God's calling and choosing. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 1 in the morning here at the beginning. Again, you read that on your own, you see all over God's calling, God's choosing. Remember your calling. God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen. It's so clear. And he sums it up, though, at the end of verse 30, telling us that by his doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Not by your own doing. By his doing, you are in Christ. And that's why it says thereafter, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Imagine you're you're lost at sea. You're alone. It's pitch black. And sharks are circling. So you are truly doomed. It's the nightmare scenario. You have no hope but rescue. Someone's going to have to save you. There's nothing you can do of your own free will. Your will is limited by your options. You have no ability to save yourself. So your will is meaningless. You are dependent on a savior. But then you, you see a light and the boat approaches That rescue has come. The rescuer throws you a life preserver. You latch on. He pulls you in the boat. You've been saved. You're saved. And so you get on board. What's the first thing you say? Say, I'm so proud of myself for hanging on so tightly to that life preserver. It's a good thing I saved myself. It's a good thing I was smart enough and good enough to cling to that life preserver with all my might or I'd be lost. Now, you would never say that. You instinctively know that your portion, your contribution was nothing compared to the rescuer. And look, if we were really making this scenario more biblical, it's when the rescuer shows up, he already finds you dead in the water. You don't even have the ability to grab the life preserver. You're senseless. Only God's power can make you alive, at which point you realize your condition, your peril, and of course, you, you freely choose to grab on that life preserver. At that point, who wouldn't? You believe, you cling to Christ, but when we get on board, when we're in Christ, we realize it's by his doing, we're not going to boast. We're going to give thanks. God must make us alive, and our final point is that he does so according to his will alone, that this election is unconditional. God gives life according to his will, not according to any condition met in man. His choosing is not based on man's foreseen work or merit or faith. It's based simply on his own will, which is perfect, yet hidden. This, this last point is controversial because it diminishes man a lot. It's, it's a low view of man. It's a high view of God. It offends our pride. It offends our sense of worth. How, how dare God take away our free will? But look, it's just what Scripture teaches, that he chooses according to his will, not us, not our goodness, not our merit, not our faith, so let me show you. Here's another barrage of scriptures that just display this truth. We just believe what the Bible teaches. So what do you make of these verses? John 1. We read verse 12. It says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Then verse 13 adds, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A great passage balancing God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that you you must believe in his name to be saved. But how can you do so? You must be born again. How does this happen? He says, you're born not by blood, not by lineage, 
not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man. Our will is not the ultimate deciding factor. We're born of the will of God, his will. John 6 is another passage that that keeps in perfect tension God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation. All throughout chapter 6, the bread of life discourse, Jesus is inviting all, come to me. John 6, 47, he who believes has eternal life. Just, Just believe, you will have eternal life. The universal call of salvation goes out as it should. But several times Jesus inserts how and why people will respond to the call. And how is that? It's only by God's sovereign power to change them and draw them. John 6, 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will not cast out. John 6, 44. He says, no one can come to me. You can't. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Same as verse 65. No one can come to me. Unless... It has been granted him from the Father. It's more of the same all over. John 5, 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. To whom he wishes. James 1, 18. In the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Parallel term to new birth. By his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Ephesians 1, we mentioned that before, that the fact of God's choosing. But that passage also explains to us what drove God's choice. Why did he choose me and not that other person? Well, it has nothing to do with me. It's not up to my merit, my foreseen faith, my will. The only explanation is God's free will. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, It says, according to the kind intention of his will. That's it, the kind intention of his will. Verse 11, that we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works out all things after the counsel of his will. There's no mention of our will anywhere here. It's about the hidden counsel of his will. This sounds just like 2 Timothy 1.9. That God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Just up to his grace. And, and we are not in control of that. We can't even see it. But it's up to his will. this, But it's true. Like We could keep going. I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version. Realize in this whole discussion, I haven't even referenced Romans 9 which is the Mount Everest and God's sovereignty and salvation, you go read it yourself. And you see how Paul attests, he says in verse 11, salvation upholds God's purpose, and it's according to his choice. Verse 16, it it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And God says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will show compassion on those whom I show compassion the hidden counsel of his will, not ours. So we need to finish up. What what did we learn this morning? Perhaps a bit too much. I told you a little dangerous to go under the surface. I hope you didn't drown. But we've learned that, that man, made in God's image, has a will. 
We make real choices. We are not robots, never presented as such in the scriptures. We must use that will to repent and believe to be saved. That's a necessity. We're justified by faith. Responsible in his salvation such that he will be saved by faith. And if you refuse the Lord, you will be judged by works. But we've also seen that man's will is not supreme. God's will is supreme. Man's will is bound and limited. Only God has truly free will, which man cannot thwart or overcome. God is comprehensively sovereign over all things. And of course, that includes the salvation of sinners. But that's a good thing. Because if God was not willing to intervene to act to save us from start to finish, none would be saved. We've learned that none would or could choose the Lord. This is why we rightly say salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his grace gift. We're saved through faith, but by grace. And when we receive the gift, we don't boast. We, we do what you do when you receive a gift. You give thanks. I said at the beginning, our goal was to just peek under the surface, search the scriptures, just trying to arrive at a fuller understanding of what God is doing in his, his work, his gift of salvation. It is a worthy goal, and it is not merely a pursuit of head knowledge. When you just rightly see the tension scripture places between God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility, it actually unlocks all these practical responses. This is very practical. Just to finish, how about like evangelism? Because God is sovereign over salvation, evangelism is not made worthless, it's made possible. If God was not sovereign in salvation, evangelism would would be impossible. If it's up to us and our cleverness, our persuasiveness to save people, nobody would believe because you'd be preaching to a valley of dry bones. They, They cannot respond. But because God can call and does call some to life as the gospel goes out, it guarantees some will respond as he wills. We're not in control of that. We don't even have knowledge of his will when it comes to this stuff. But what does he hold us, the church, responsible for in this? It's to take the general call, the gospel, and just preach it everywhere. Blanket the whole earth with the good news of the gospel. To scatter the seed on every field. Some might be by the road, rocky soil, thorny soil. It's not in our control. We scatter the seed, go to sleep, trusting his will to be done. We're just to be faithful to share the gospel with everyone, trusting his power to save. And at the same time, that's why we pair evangelism with fervent prayer, that God would open their eyes to behold Christ and that they would believe. Look, isn't that what everybody prays? Some people have trouble affirming what Scripture says that God chooses, that it's up to his will. But at the end of the day, everybody prays like this is true. Everybody prays like this. You pray like, God, save my loved one. Open their eyes, make them believe, enable them to see Christ that they would believe. You pray like this, as you should, as we should. So as Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. We happily repeat that Savior's invitation to everybody. Come, come one, come all to Jesus. But at the same time, we know, like he says before, no one knows the Son except the Father, no one knows the Father except the Son, and any to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And this is why we pray then, Lord, reveal yourself 
to this person. Show your glory to this person. Open the eyes of their heart that they may behold wondrous things from your word. They might see you and believe. So you go right on preaching the gospel. That is the vehicle for the effectual call. And then you pray. It would take effect. Now beyond this, the truths we've seen this morning should lead to the response of holy living. You realize the purpose for which we've been called is to share in God's holiness. We should now run from the filth and run to the Savior as we fight the flesh. It should also lead us to the response of eternal comfort, knowing that the same God who called us, he's not going to let us go. He's going to hold on to us. Once we get in the boat, he's not going to push us back out. We must persevere in the faith, but he will preserve us faithfully to the end. The one who began a good work in you will complete it, Philippians 1.6. Like what a total cure for anxiety this is, just to know eternally nothing can separate God's elect from God's love. That's Romans 8. But we have to finish by saying our greatest response, of course, has to be worship. You should sit in awe of just how big and mighty this God is. Happily, let's diminish man if it exalts God in our eyes. See him on the throne. He, our, our God sits in the heavens. He does what he pleases. But the fact that he would be moved to any compassion on us, to see us who were at enmity with him, rebels to him, and be moved to compassion, and then do so much to save us, that should produce a, a deep sense of unworthiness that should translate right into thanksgiving, praise, worship. From our lips to our lives, you should see God's great purpose in redemption. Ephesians 1, three times, it's all to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why he chose us, why he called us, why he saved us. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so we should ever and always praise him in how we live, how we walk, how we talk, how we trust him, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We should worship the God of our salvation. And all we do, always. Romans 11, 33. We have to end the same way Paul does as he just thinks on how big God is. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we we can't help but echo the the explosion of praise and thanksgiving that comes from the Apostle Paul's heart, that to you be the glory forever. We know that from you, through you, to you are all things. You're supreme. You're the maker. We're merely the creature. Made in your image, given value, but how quickly we threw it away and and ran from you, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We all know this experience of living in our own ways, as if we were God and King, Lord and Sovereign. But we're not. We can only give more thanks, though, that in, in some mystery of your will, you were moved to compassion on us and the sons of Adam, not like you were with the sons of the angels or the angels, that you you moved to pity, sent God the Son, to become a man, to take on flesh, to be incarnate, and even then to suffer profoundly your full wrath, drinking the cup all the way for lost rebel 
sinners, dead. How you would do this for us, we still can't comprehend that the love of God, it is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell, but we will tell of it as we've received it in Christ. We have chosen to believe, and we pray you firm up our choice, but we don't boast. We know you, you opened our eyes. You're, you enabled us to see you, to see our lost condition, and to run to you. Help us now to continue to cling to you as you hold on to us. May we do so faithfully and just live in light of the God who has saved us, who has chosen and called us, not squander our calling and choosing, but use it for your glory, for your praise, and now to let the nations know that the nations might be glad that the Lord's salvation has come. The door. So help us. Help us to follow you always. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.